Welcome back to Truth and Lies, The Boston Strangler. I'm your host, Dick Lair. In our first three episodes, we explored the search for an elusive killer that left the city of Boston in a state of terror for years. A new 20th Century Studios film called Boston Strangler, now streaming on Hulu, re-examines the story of The Strangler and some of its complexities. In this episode, we'll go deeper into the fictional retelling with two of the film's stars, Kira Knightley and Carrie Coon, who play two women journalists looking for patterns in The Strangler's killings. Their roles are based on the real-life journalists, Loretta McLaughlin and Jean Cole, who are reporting in an era when the crime beat was viewed as a man's job. Loretta and Jean vehemently insisted on warning Boston women about the killer in their midst, long before the murders became front-page news. Here's a clip from the film. Nobody knows what a woman alone feels. No one knows fear as we know it. There is but one answer. The Boston Phantom. The Boston Strangler must be caught. Guess he's got a name now. Kira and Carrie sat down with my ABC audio colleague, Brad Milkey, recently to talk about what it was like to step into the shoes of these reporters so ahead of their time. Hey, it's Brad Milkey here with Kira Knightley and Carrie Kuhn. So excited to talk to you guys about questions that audience members of the film have had, that listeners of this podcast have had. So thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Kira, first of all, can I ask you, had you heard of the Boston Strangler case before you saw this script? I'd heard of it, but I, I didn't know anything about it. So, I mean, it was a vague, like, yes, that sounds vaguely familiar, but no, I didn't. So the, the script was the first time that I'd actually really known anything and then went, wow, look at these two women. This is amazing. And then sort of did some Googling and went, oh, they've been left out of, <laughs> of the story normally. Ah. The women who are telling the, the story. The women who are telling the story, yeah, have been completely left out of most of the things written about it. So, oh, that's a reason to do this film. <laughs> that's what sort of made you go like, aha, this is what I can latch on yeah, to. Yeah, definitely. You know, I mean, I think oh, there are obviously so many amazing true crime pieces of work. It's very rare that you get it told through a female perspective. You know, you normally have the kind of psychotic killer who's a man and then the male cop who's chasing him. And it, I thought it was a really sort of interesting way to look at it through these two female journalists. Carrie, had you, and I'm interested kind of in the true criminess of it all too, because had you, as an American, I assume it's a little bit more maybe peripheral that you've heard of this case or kind of like what was going on in the U.S. at the time. Sure. And I'd seen the Tony Curtis movie. So I bought the narrative hook, line and sinker about DeSalvo. And I had heard vague notions about how there might be multiple killers, but I didn't know much about it. When I read the script, same, I thought these women have been completely erased from this story. And what I didn't know, it was 10 years before they coined the term serial killer. We didn't even have the language to describe what this man was doing. We're so steeped in that now, in that culture, that I just, you would assume he would have been referred to that way, but he wasn't, which made Loretta and Jean's journey even more poignant to me because Loretta was doing some really innovative stuff by psychologically profiling that killer. And I think some of the cops were involved in that as well. But that was very forward-thinking work. So it's really also a journalism movie. To think what's connecting all these things beyond yes. just what the cops are telling me. Mm -hmm. at this and moment. how to profile somebody. That's that never been done before. Like, who is this person? How do we find this man? And watching this film, it's not like we're spending a lot of time with the killer or even with like the crime scenes necessarily. It almost seems like it's a story about women in this city 
in this moment. I guess I'm wondering, did you get a sense of connection between even your characters and the women in the city at that time? That's what I really liked about it. You know, I felt like it was totally a story about how important it is to have female investigative journalists because they will choose different stories than their male counterparts. And I think with this particularly, you see it from a female perspective. What they did was they went, these are women in our community being killed and we have to warn other women in the Boston community. And so that's what I loved about it. And I very much think that that's what this film is. It's about how important it is to have women in positions of power as far as storytelling goes. And as women, we've all walked into rooms and been dismissed or underestimated. And that's certainly the way these women were being treated in a newsroom in the 1960s when it was so rare for women to be journalists at all, let alone not be just on the lifestyle desk or the advice column or covering society pages or doing some stunt reporting, you know, one story here or there that was special. And it was very unusual for women to be covering crime. And so I think Kira and I both work in a male-dominated profession. We're both working moms. There were just too many parallels, frankly, between us and these women in the 1960s. And that it's almost conditional. Like, yes, you can work at the paper, but on this particular beat. It almost made me think about the family dynamics here. And we're going to listen to a scene where Loretta, your character, mother of three, has this kind of rising tension, not just in her newsroom, but now in her home with her husband over their two careers. I took a new position at work. It's better pay, but I have to be in the Connecticut office part-time. Part-time? A few days a week. How long's this been in the works? A couple weeks. And when were you gonna tell me about it? A lot of long days lately. Hasn't exactly been a good time. How are we supposed to manage with you gone half the week? You're gonna have to do your share. What more could I possibly do sure to quit my job? Is this your way of telling me to stay home? Is that what Oh, come on, Loretta. Have I ever asked you to stay home? You just do something like this instead. What? I'm free to do what I want as long as it's on your terms. Isn't that right? You are unbelievable. You know that? My sister is right about you. You just... What? Say it. Say it. Most people would be happy their husband got a promotion. What do you think people should take away from that scene? Well, I am a mother of two. Um, I am a working woman. I have a husband who also works. It is not easy. (laughs) Um, I I would like to stand here and go, even from my place of immense privilege, where, you know, I've been really successful in my career, I can afford amazing childcare. It is still not easy. I'm a freelancer. I work in a profession where the hours are all over the place. We travel all over the place. We never know how long we're going to be there. We never, you know, trying to do all of that kind of stuff and deal with childcare is very difficult. And so it's sort of one of the things that I loved about this is that it was showing that backstory of that tension that I think most families have of trying to have a relationship, have a career, raise your children. And that, you know, there is a struggle between a partnership of whose work is more important, who has their moment, when they have their moment, you know, how much you're allowed your own life within this family, um, how much you're allowed to be an individual as well as a family member. You know, I think that's something that every single person who's in a relationship and they have children has been through that struggle and that argument. We spoke with Matt Ruskin, the director. He said that you connected not just sort of with the story and the themes, but also like specifically the character of Loretta. We haven't talked much about her sort of backstory. What did you learn about her and what things were you like, aha, that I get? I think Loretta is a bit like a bull in a china shop. I think that she's become incredibly angry that nobody's taking her seriously. 
she's becoming incredibly angry at being underestimated. And I think her way of dealing with it is almost to, uh, you know, punch people in the face. Not actually, but, you know, but, but that's what she does is she yells at people. And, um, and I thought, I totally understand this. And of course, she mostly doesn't get her way because anger is, you know, it, it, particularly for women, people get very put off by female anger, female rage, and she can't stop it. Now, within my life, I have known those feelings and I have occasionally been a bull in a china shop. And I'm here to say it's not the right way of dealing with things. <laughs> you don't get your way. But I totally understood that kind of emotional place that she's in where she just wants to do a good job. She knows she can do the good job and she's got all of these guys standing in her way and she just wants to punch them in the face. <laughs> Carrie, you're also playing a reporter who's covering the case, who's dealing with sexism on the job, and yet it's a very different character. Does she see the world differently? Like, what surprised you about Jean Cole? What's great about Jean's biography is she exemplifies that really classic story of a woman who pursued a career that was outside of nursing, teaching, homemaking. And she did it without getting the appropriate education. So what happened to Jean, she was working in a Pinkham's drugstore and all the reporters were covering the disappearance of the young girl, Frances McGrath. And Bob Court, who was a reporter, was in the Pinkham's because they were all using the public telephone. And they got to know each other from her serving him every day. And she said, hey, you got a job for me? Well, he called her in that fall to have a meeting with the editor and she became a copy boy. She waited five hours in her saddle shoes and her ankle socks to get that job. And she said, if I get this job, I'm never going to nursing school. And she applied for the position of apprentice reporter. And C. Edward Holland gave her that job. He said, OK, I'm going to give you a shot. And she was really scared. She didn't know what she didn't know. And so she worked her way up through journalism, just kind of working on stories. And she never went to school for journalism. She learned it all on the job. She took some courses about rhetoric and things like that. And so she had had to work alongside an entirely male newsroom to accomplish that. And so she did have a different way of moving through it. She believed in practical feminism. You still get to be feminine. You don't get offended by the jokes because you have to be able to be in the room. You put your head down and you do your job and you do your job well. And that was the way she made it through that job. And, you know, Loretta came in with an education and a degree in journalism. She'd already proven herself, really. And, you know, Jean just had figured out a different way to get through life. And she also had a lot of men who helped her. She was making, I think it was $35 a week or something, and $30 was going to childcare because she had two kids. And all of her male coworkers came into the office with her to advocate for her to get a raise. So she had actually had some really supportive figures in her life, just like I have in my career in Hollywood. I've not worked with a lot of bullies. I've worked with a lot of really supportive men with strong female partners generally, and they're feminists and they have such a strong angle on the work that takes into account the female perspective. So I've been really fortunate in my career in this male-dominated industry. And I feel like Jean really benefited from some of that support, too. And so she has a different way of looking at it than Loretta. Getting to sort of the difference that you talked about and how these women had to sort of come up through these newsrooms and how they were treated, I'd like to play a clip where Jean and Loretta are sort of facing similar challenges at the moment. Like Jean has more experience. Loretta is asking her for advice. So let's just take a listen to this. I don't know what I'm supposed to do anymore. About what? About everything. Now it's like I get to do half of everything I really want and everyone around me still feels shortchanged. James has had enough. My, my poor kids are spooked. You know, most of my paycheck goes to the babysitter now. Who cares? You're going to make yourself crazy worrying about everyone else all the time. You can't be apologetic. Not about the things that are important to you. How come you're so calm about everything? Now, you've got kids. It must be crazy for you, too. 
How'd you keep everything so under control? My life's a three-ring circus. The wheels have been about to fall off since our youngest was born. So what do you want to do about this story? You sure you want to keep going with this? Hearing that, what do you take away from sort of what Gene is trying to impart in this newsroom? The exact conversation Kira and I were having every single day on set, because every day we'd come to work and I would say, who's doing this well? Who is a working mom, young kids, a partnership? Who's actually executing all of this? Like in your well, real life. Yes. Yeah. It was life imitating art, imitating life. Is that, is that the iteration? I don't know. I'm a working mom. I can't think that clearly. <laughs> but we are these women. And the thing about this movie is that women are watching it. <laughs> And realizing that the work-life balance struggle has always existed, has never been solved, and in fact, has been compounded, I think, recently by some factors. I mean, so many women left the workforce during the pandemic because it was actually not possible to do what they're talking about in that conversation, to find that balance. And I think one of the surprising takeaways from the film is that the way women are relating to the film is not about being murdered. We always know we could be murdered. We live with that every day. It's that work-life balance continues to be such an incredible struggle for working women. I think there's a terrible thing as well. There's this kind of thing that you can have everything. It's been a terrible thing to put on women, that idea, because you can't. You can do everything at different times, but you cannot That's do kind everything of the scene at the with same the husband time. that we were it's, talking it's about. Of like, it's yeah. not, not now, though. Not now, exactly. There was an interesting word that quite a few women have used when they've seen this film, and they've said cathartic. And I thought that was such an interesting word given this film. But I think it's exactly that because it's showing these two women struggling with trying to have everything and failing to have everything. You know, it's all a balance and there's there's loss involved. Some folks don't stop searching till they find the truth. If you've got a detective's eye, June's Journey is the game for you. Play as June Parker in a gripping murder mystery as you find hidden objects to help solve her sister's death. You'll hunt for clues in hundreds of beautifully illustrated scenes set in the Roaring Twenties. New chapters are added weekly. Find your first clue by downloading June's Journey today. Available on Android and iOS mobile devices, as well as on PC through Facebook games. Hi, I'm Chris Gethard, and I'm very excited to tell you about Beautiful Anonymous, a podcast where I talk to random people on the phone. I tweet out a phone number, thousands of people try to call, talk to one of them they stay anonymous i can't hang up that's all the rules i never know what's going to happen we get serious ones i've talked with meth dealers on their way to prison i've talked to people who survived mass shootings crazy funny ones i talked to a guy with a goose laugh somebody who dresses up as a pirate on the weekends i never know what's going to happen it's a great show subscribe today beautiful anonymous people who disappear without a trace where is she the most notorious murder cases in new york pure evil and the most devious killers there's a hannibal lecter feel to him for chilling true crime stories follow the true crime nyc podcast wherever you listen i'm kind of blown away by how much you were able just to like go about the biography like what is the preparation like she's got her notes, I've got with notes her. here i've lost my notes so old swat over there has all her <laughs> notes and i feel like i'm the girl that forgot to do her homework but i must say that one thing that kira and i share is that seven years ago we would have learned shorthand and touch typing to prepare for this role but now we have children and so we have to rely on the script and also our filmmaker who handed us a whole packet of notes for each woman because you know he matt actually knew Jean's granddaughter he had contact with the family he had access to the notes she had when she was writing a biography a potential biography that she never wrote and so matt really took good care of us and gave us everything we needed and we were not encouraged to speak to the families because matt had done his due diligence 
So literally we walked in and Matt had done so much research that he handed us a booklet on both characters. And I went, can I talk to the family? And he went, no. <laughs> I went, okay. Can we do these Boston accents? No. Okay, I'm English. I didn't realize there was a whole thing about a Boston accent over here. Right, so I just go, it's the Boston Strangler. She's from Boston. I Google the Boston accent. I'm like, that's one of the great accents. Like, this is so fun. I talked to Matt and he's like, no Boston accent. What? But she's from Boston. She had a Boston accent. No Boston accent. I mean, he is from Boston. He has very strongly that if you are not from Boston, you are not allowed to do the Boston accent. So literally in this film, if you didn't come from the street that that accent was from, you're not allowed to do it. Jean's mom was an Irish immigrant and her dad was the fire chief in Southie. I mean, she would have had that. And we have a brilliant clip of Loretta. Oh, my uh, Loretta's actual accent. accent. It was amazing because it was so she's two Irish immigrants, but she had this incredible deep Bostonian accent, but with amazing like, I mean, I describe it as Kennedy overtones. So I was so excited. And he was like, absolutely not. What you're saying here, it makes me think of like Boston, like you said, is kind of its own character in this film, right? And and what makes true crime interesting often is kind of the universality of it. This could happen anywhere, but it happened here. And this is a very specific place and a very specific time. So I'm kind of wondering what felt unique about what the women of Boston were going through that you were trying to kind of color in this film. Well, they were certainly up against the Boston PD, which had a reputation for being Challenging. I mean, the newspapers didn't dare criticize the Boston PD. There were a lot of politics involved at that time. And so a story concerning women really didn't have a chance anyway. And criticizing the police really put you in an uncomfortable position because then they would stop collaborating. They wouldn't collaborate with journalists. So I think that was a risk of telling the story at all. But also, you know, some of the women, the victims were older initially, but then the MO changed. Well, each of that kind of seemed to speak to who got paid attention to the most was also who the victims were. Yeah, I was going to make that point. I mean, I think the first four or five, I think, were described as elderly. Now, actually, they weren't elderly. But again, they were not the quote-unquote sexy younger victim, right? So these were women in their middle age who were meant to be ignored, who are not seen. And, you know, I think there's a scene in the film where they said, but these are nobodies. Who cares about these nobody women? And and you just think, wow, yes, women in their 50s are meant to be not seen. And so I think that was largely maybe why they were being ignored, why it wasn't being taken seriously as a case. But also the different police departments were not speaking to each other. And I think that's one of the really amazing things that these two journalists really picked up was the lack of information sharing between departments. So actually the linking of these crimes wasn't happening because the police departments weren't sharing the information. I've been wanting to know also, as long as we're talking about the killings, do you think they got the right guy? Like, what was your takeaway at the end of this movie? Well, I mean, I think that it's been proven that DeSalvo killed one of them. So he absolutely did, you know. Some of it. Um, we, some of it, We yeah. know that for sure. I do. I, I personally, having no other information than what is in the public sphere, think that there were multiple killers. The case was just much more complex than I ever understood it to be. At this point in your career also, I'm curious about how you select roles at this point. We've been talking about the working mom aspect of it. What sort of roles speak to you? Even beyond this film, like how do you feel about selecting roles that you play at this point? I wish I had a plan. I go with what I'm interested in. I mean, and I know that sounds super simplistic. Um, I keep on being offered right now loads of characters who are dying. And I'm just, I just don't want to go there. I don't want to go there right now. I might want to go there at some point, but I don't want to go there right now. Um, So I'm not doing that. Um, But no, it, it really, I follow my nose. 
Because I was thinking, like, both of you guys have been in films about, like, not true crime necessarily, but about whistleblowers, like Official Secrets, The Post. I'm wondering if there's something special or significant to you at all about these stories, kind of of real people who are sticking their nose out there at great risk to themselves sometimes. Well, those are always worth telling. Inspiring people to be the whistleblower is always a good story to tell. I think my takeaway is often when you're telling a real story like that, how underexplored some of the stories actually are. Because, you know, I played Meg Greenfield in The Post. She is a woman whose biography is worthy of a movie in her own right. And that movie's probably not going to get made. And so there are just so many stories left to uncover. And then you read something like this script and you say, well, how many other women have been erased from the narratives? How many other people of color have been erased? How many other really much more interesting stories could we be telling when we've accepted these narratives that exist without questioning? And so it just made me think more about that. But as for choosing work, for my husband and I, it's just like, is this the undeniable story that needs to be told? And whose is it? You know, we have to take turns, essentially. You can't really both work at the same time with kids as young as ours. That makes me think about this film in particular. There's always kind of the why now question. Why did this story need to be told at this moment? Well, I think very specifically for me, coming from England, there'd been some absolutely horrific killings in England of women. And I think the rates of femicide are just shocking. I mean, globally shocking. But there were three particular cases that year in England, the most famous being one of Sarah Everard. Yeah, Sarah Everard, who was killed in 2021, right? Yeah. There were protests in London about that killing. And like every other woman who lives in London, I was so angry about it. You know, I was so, I felt it, as everybody did in London, you know, I think we we felt it on a very, very deep level of how can we be here and how can that have happened to these women? And so I think actually I read the script after that. I felt like it was something that I wanted to look at because what I was interested in was my own rage at the waste of life. And the fact that people can look at at these women and try and make it their fault. You know, they try and say, well, you shouldn't have been there or you were wearing the wrong clothes. Or you and I think what's quite interesting about the first four killings in the Boston, actually all of the killings, is because it happened within their home, you couldn't blame them because they weren't out in a public space. Somebody came into their houses. And and it's quite an interesting narrative when you can't blame the victim because actually the responsibility goes on to male violence. And what is that? And why aren't we talking about male violence? Because when we talk about violence against women, we miss out male violence against women. And I find that interesting. Yeah, the language matters. Carrie, anything from you about what makes this interesting to you at this moment? Well, I think art is often ahead of history. We're the ones who are telling the stories. And we are the ones that get to unearth the perspective that's not the victor. And I think when you look back on art, it's usually ahead of whatever the historical narrative is. And I think in the United States, we're obviously seeing a tremendous amount of repression in certain communities. There's a particular trend in the United States about women of color going missing. In Chicago, there's an artistic project devoted to the portraits of some of the women that have gone missing in Chicago, whose murders have never and probably will never be solved. Black women missing, there's a whole show now devoted to these cases. And what I love about what's happening in TV and to some degree in film, for example, I've never seen more indigenous actors on TV than I'm seeing right now. Reservation Dogs, The English, there's some astonishing work being done that's recovering some of the indigenous voices in the United States. And I think that is a really powerful trend. And it's it's coming up against some, frankly, fascist and authoritarian tendencies unfolding in this country. So it's very important that we continue to tell these stories. And I think this is a great example of that, of, you know, a a narrative being completely erased and it being recovered. And I think that's a really good message for art. Last question for you. 
What's next for you guys? Are you into true crime so much that you're just going to keep doing true crime stories? Are you going to start your own true crime podcasts? What should we know? No, it's horrible. <laughs> no, I was doing. Is this it terrible to, to do these roles? It was very dark. I mean, it should be dark. I mean, it's very dark, you know. And it was it was very dark. I think that's why suddenly I, I keep getting offered all these roles, dying and death, and and I'm like, no, I need something nicer. I just I actually did a voiceover for a kids a kids animation. I was like, oh, this is so nice. I think I needed this after this darkness. I needed a it's bit a safe of just space. Like, lovely joy. Yeah, my family's always been desperate for me to do a comedy, but I, I seem to be stuck in the drama world with lots of crying. But I'm headed off to the UK to do the Ghostbusters sequel, which is exciting because that is fun. a very playful world. And I love that group. And The Gilded Age, of course, will come out um, hopefully in the fall. So that's also a fun, light world, though it is about you know, the capitalists who maybe got us where we are today. So I have a lot of, you know, lovely sort of lighter things in my life. And yeah, always hoping for comedy. But every time a movie like Boston Strangler comes out, it just sets me back. <laughs> it's a really interesting movie to watch. It's also a really valuable movie. I think your performances are really valuable. So uh, Carrie Coon, Kira Knightley, thank you both so much. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was my colleague, Brad Milkey, who hosts the Start Here podcast from ABC Audio in conversation with Kira Knightley and Carrie Coon. Their new film, Boston Strangler from 20th Century Studios, is streaming on Hulu now. 20th Century Studios and Hulu are divisions of the Walt Disney Company, the parent company of ABC News. This episode of Truth and Lies, The Boston Strangler was produced by Meg Fierro. It was mixed by Evan Viola. Our supervising producers were Susie Liu and Sasha Zlanian. Special thanks to Brad Milkey, Matt Wolf, Ariel Chester, and Amira Williams. Laura Mayer is our executive producer. Josh Cohen is our director of podcasting. Liz Alessi is VP of audio. 